Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com By night, Manhattan holds 1.6 million souls. In the morning, over twice as many rush in like a tide, filling up office blocks, coffee shops and spin classes. In the evening, this tide drains back out over bridges and through tunnels, leaving just a thin residue of small hours stopouts and shift workers. This ebb and flow is shallower at weekends and in summer, but it's held its rhythm for more than a century. In March 2020, it stopped. When the streets filled again in June, it was to protest against racism and police violence in the wake of the death of George Floyd. Bill de Blasio, the city's mayor, imposed a curfew. Nowhere represented the 20th century's love affair with the idea of the city better than New York. Ever since it overtook London, the previous top dog, in 1925, it's been the toast of the world. With nearly $2 trillion in GDP, it's still the richest city on the planet. But the city that never sleeps remains heavily sedated as a new year begins. This is Checks and Balance. I'm John Prideau, The Economist's US editor. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, what's the future of New York City? New York became the epicenter of the pandemic when it first hit America. More than 25,000 New Yorkers have died of COVID-19. An estimated 300,000 have left the city as its health infrastructure stretched beyond capacity, schools closed, and crime spiked. The loss of commuters and tourists leaves a gaping hole in the city's finances. But the city's bounced back from bankruptcy, and worse, before. Can it do it again in 2021? With me, as ever, to discuss all of this are Charlotte Howard, The Economist's New York Bureau Chief. We're going to be hearing from Charlotte a lot in this podcast, leaning on her New York expertise. And also John Fasman, who's the same John Fasman, but with a new job title. He's no longer Washington correspondent. He's now US digital editor, working hand in glove with me. Happy New Year to both of you. Happy New Year to you too, John. Happy New Year. Um, is hand in glove a weird expression? What's it even mean? <laughs> Who knows? Who's the hand and who's the glove? It starts to get weird. <laughs> yeah. I think I may be the glove. I think John Fassman is the true power. Uh, do either of you guys have any New Year's resolutions? No. New Year's resolutions are things that you hope that you improve about yourself. All of my aspirations involve improvements, um, external improvements. So I think, you know, I'm in a state of perfection. It's just the world has failed me. I have a few, but they're private. So I won't be embarrassed when I fail to keep them. 
Well, just by way of a seamless link, one of my New Year's resolutions is to spend more time in New York in 2021 than I did in 2020, which will not be hard given that COVID shut the world last year. So let's get this started. It's worth reflecting a bit on how brutal the past year has been for the city. Our colleague Rosemary Ward was reporting on the impact of the pandemic in New York throughout 2020. She's been in touch with two people working in the Bronx who've been particularly affected. They are Sal Ferenga, a funeral director, and Kelly Cabrera, a nurse. Well, I work at a level one trauma center in the South Bronx. We're the fifth generation of our family to be funeral directors, one of the oldest family-owned uh, and operated businesses in the city. My hospital is 15 minutes from New Rochelle, the area that had a lockdown very early on in the pandemic, and the National Guard was deployed there. On our computers, when we would triage patients, there was a question that just flipped mid-shift. It must have been around 3 p.m., all of a sudden there was a new screening question that we had to ask our patients, and that was if they had recently been to New Rochelle. So previously we had a list of questions asking if people had traveled internationally to China, Italy, and I think at that point I knew that it was inevitable. We were gonna, we were going to get slammed. Pretty early on I went to one of the relatively smaller hospitals in New York City to see a refrigerated trailer for the use of uh, morgue purposes. That was not normal. It was just every patient was a COVID patient. Whether it was our walk-in triage area where people, you know, either took taxis or the bus or just literally walked to the hospital or we had our ambulances, there was just so many. I would say 30 funerals a month would be a busy uh, month for, for where we are. In 30 days, we did about 130 funerals. I had a patient that I had triaged at 9 a.m. She was talking to me. I mean, obviously she had difficulty breathing, but she was able to answer my questions and and I remember putting her in the room and getting the oxygen on her. And I continued triaging the rest of the patients. And I just look over and by noon, she had died. And that just kept happening over and over again. I had to tell the family, I'm sorry, I don't see how I can handle this. That was a very poignant moment uh, in, in my career, even in my life, because when I thought, I thought about it for how long our business has been in the city, and I couldn't imagine a circumstance where any of my, my father, grandfather, would tell someone, no, we can't handle that. I had to almost collect myself after that phone call, like, I can't believe that just happened. It gets to you after a while. You know, you're doing it over and over and over again, and, and there's just nothing, there is nothing more awful than zipping somebody up in a body bag. I pat myself on the back for kind of forcing people to take days off because burnout, physical and mental, uh, is a very real thing. Uh, personally, I 
could be honest and say I'm still going through a little bit of, of that. Even, even now, because things are still a little unclear as to when things will be, you know, quote unquote normal, if they ever will be. One of the hardest things I ever had to do is facilitate the goodbyes. I hope that nobody ever has to experience that. Watching people say goodbye to each other. And it's why I just hope that people take this seriously and they know that, that the reason we're asking people to wear masks and to socially distance, it's not, it's not for any other reason other than to keep you safe. That's it. That's all we want. I hope that people will take something from this, this period in time. It's so unique and so, it, in New York City, it was so chaotic. Um, I hope people can just kind of, you know, see things in a little bit of a new light. Next year will be uh, our 125th year. And uh, I, I really hope to see that. I hope to see a change in people and just a, more of an appreciation for the everyday, the everyday things. Charlotte, can you begin just by laying out what COVID-19 has done to New York so far? Well, there are the obvious numbers that were listed at the top, that you have more than 25,000 New Yorkers who've died, 300,000 more have been made ill by COVID. So it's just a lot of people who've been sick. But of course, there's also the enormous, enormous economic impact, which frankly is not, we're not even in the in quite the early innings because of the cushion that's been provided by the federal government in terms of providing unemployment insurance and other aid to the city. So in October, the city's unemployment rate was 13.2%. That's nearly twice the national rate. Um, Pre-COVID, the unemployment rate was less than 4%. It was about 3.8. And during the recession, as a point of contrast, it was 10%, 8.5% after 2001 attacks. So it's really significantly higher. And those job losses are, are pretty concentrated in hotels and retail, uh, restaurants, in healthcare, dentists' office, and so forth. Um, there's also, of course, been the huge impact on New York's cultural institutions and on Broadway, which remains dark. It's a very big economic hole. And part of the reason is because of the scale of New York's tourist and service industries. So last year, 67 million people visited New York, and they generated about $70 billion. They were spending money all over the place, um, Broadway shows, bars, museums, hotels. A lot of those were international visitors. Many other American cities get a huge amount of domestic visitors, and New York is notable for how many people come from abroad, about 13, over 13 million last year. So it's just been an enormous, enormous hit economically to the city, in addition to the utterly severe devastation caused by the virus itself. Charlotte, I think when most people think of New York, they think of the concrete canyons in Manhattan. But of course, Manhattan's only one of five boroughs. What parts of the city has the virus hit hardest? There are neighborhoods that, in, particularly in the spring, were very hard hit in Queens. There was Elmhurst, Corona, Jackson Heights. Um, it's interesting now, Staten Island, which was not hit hard at the beginning of the pandemic, is seeing a spike in cases. Staten Island, of course, being New York's one Republican-dominant 
borough, Staten Islanders voted for Donald Trump by a higher margin than did the state of Texas, as the uh, beloved local radio host Brian Lair was pointing out the other day. And so, you know, you see the impact playing out a bit differently in different parts of the city. But one of the reasons why the outer boroughs were hit hard by the virus, but then also um, by the economic impact, is that many of the people who work in retail, who work in restaurants, in personal care, many of these service workers live in lower income neighborhoods outside Manhattan. And Charlotte, given that, as you say, so much of the hit that New York City has taken over the past 12 months has been because tourists aren't coming and people haven't been able to go to restaurants, and given that presumably once Americans are vaccinated, or at least enough Americans are vaccinated and enough tourists are vaccinated that the city can open up again, those things presumably will come back. Why is there so much pessimism about the outlook for New York in the medium term? I mean, you could imagine that things will get back to how they were before relatively swiftly, no? Well, there are a few problems. One is that it's a bit of an open question when all the tourists will come back. Another problem is that it's not clear how much help is going to come to New York businesses and to New Yorkers themselves in the new year. So as I said, there has been assistance from the federal government for small businesses, for restaurants who've really been trying to muddle through. There has been, of course, been assistance to unemployed New Yorkers. But the state itself and the city itself have these massive fiscal holes, not just in 2020, but going forward. And so that requires austerity. Um, It requires deep spending cuts, some tax increases. And the question is whether you can sustain those spending cuts without harming the city's quality of life, such that even more New Yorkers continue to leave. So there's a real tax-based problem, which the city faces, which was the same, frankly, the same tax-based problem that they faced in the 1970s, where you have this potential spiral where people leave, the tax base declines, New York becomes a harder place to live, and more people leave. I do think one thing, just speaking from my own vantage point, one thing that's been very hard for parents is um, homeschooling, of course. And some suburbs have not gone to homeschooling. They offer you know, in-person school. I have neighbors and friends who've moved to the suburbs really only for that reason, because they can't deal with having kids homeschooled, and that's reasonable. And so once the vaccine is rolled out, that at least will be alleviated, but there are some longer structural issues that the city is going to have to deal with. Okay, thank you both. We'll look back on how the city's come back from crises in the past in just a moment. First, I should remind listeners that the best way to get on top of things this new year is with an Economist subscription. Best offer is at economist.com slash 2020 election pod. If you're subscribing now, you can enjoy some of the long reads in our Christmas issue, including Fasman's fascinating piece on America's post-Civil War reconstruction, which we covered in our last episode. That link again, economist.com slash 2020 election pod. It's in the notes for this episode. So much of New York's fortunes in recent decades are tied to stories of crime and policing. And a key protagonist in many of those is Rudy Giuliani. President Trump's lawyer launched his political career in 1989. A prosecutor, the reputation for taking on the mafia, he entered the race for mayor. It's very important for the future of our city that we all come together. And I want you to show that spirit! 
Now do it! All right! Giuliani lost. His concession speech was the kind his current boss would no doubt deem weak. The winner, David Dinkins, was the first African-American to run the city. But when police officers protested Dinkins' plan to reform the board that investigated police brutality, Giuliani ditched the Kumbaya. The reason the morale of the police department of the city of New York is so low is one reason and one reason alone, David Dinkins! A Dinkins aide accused Giuliani of trying to, quote, flame racial tensions. It only enhanced his electoral prospects. The 1993 election was a rematch. This time, Giuliani won. The era of fear has had a long enough reign. The period of doubt has run its course. As of this moment, the expressions of cynicism, New York is not governable, New York is not manageable, New York is not worth it, all of these I declare politically incorrect. Let's not use them anymore. The new mayor couldn't control his mischievous young son during the inauguration ceremony, but he got a grip on crime. Murders in the city dropped 66% between 1990 and 1997. But cheerleading law enforcement also came with a cost. In 1999, Bronx police officers shot and killed Amadou Diallo, a West African immigrant, at the entrance to his apartment. As he reached out for his wallet to show his ID, the officers shot him 41 times. Giuliani had already begun trading on his tough reputation to build a national political profile. He insisted that in this case, the police, quote, should be given the benefit of the doubt. Is it a gun? Is it a knife? The officers who killed Diallo were acquitted. Bruce Springsteen was moved to write the song 41 Shots about the incident, playing it at a run of shows at Madison Square Garden the following year. The performances sparked more protests by police officers. Some refused to work security for them. That same year, a Haitian man named Patrick Dorismond was also shot dead by police in a drug sting. In the aftermath, Mayor Giuliani suggested Dorismond was, quote, no altar boy. Dorismond actually was an altar boy. This haplessness is familiar now, even though Giuliani enjoyed immense popularity after 9-11. But the ebb and flow of his political fortunes reveal how unsteady the balance between crime, race, and prosperity can be in New York. Charlotte, the 70s and 80s in New York are sometimes remembered as a bleak period of high crime and Central Park being unsafe, etc. But were they really that bad? I mean, you're a multi-generational New Yorker. I mean, there were still things to like about the city in the in the 70s and 80s, even when it was at its low, low ebb, right? Right. I mean, I was born in 2001, so I missed it. But um, no, when I was growing up, it, it was definitely a different city. The area I grew up in downtown Manhattan, in a perfectly nice area of downtown Manhattan. But, you know, there were hookers walking down my street and you don't see that anymore. Public parks were not places that you wanted to spend too much time, particularly any time close to twilight. But it was a lovely place to grow up. You always had the culture. You always had so many interesting 
people and professionals in New York City, the things that make New York dynamic now are the things that have always made New York dynamic. But it has had these periods of time when people deemed it ungovernable. So the most famous instance, of course, was in the late 60s through the 70s when the city lost hundreds of thousands of manufacturing jobs. The white middle class fled to the suburbs. The the city lost more than a million net residents in the 70s, almost all of them white. And with them left a huge amount of taxes to support the city. The city couldn't afford its debt and pay its bills. There's this famous headline, which everyone knows from President Ford at the time, saying that he wasn't going to bail out the city. And the Daily News had a headline, you know, Ford to city drop dead. It's probably the single most iconic New York headline out there. And it took a long time for the city to come back from that. And it took, Ed Koch was a, was a, was a good mayor in the 1980s. But in the 1990s, when Giuliani was elected, you hear him referring back to that charge of New York being ungovernable. And he really took that on in an aggressive way that won him both praise and criticism. Um, There was a huge crackdown on crime. Uh, Crime fell precipitously during his tenure. And so some give him a lot of credit for that. Others say that he fed a sort of racial antagonism in the city. But that was the beginning of, of a different phase for New York. The other thing that's worth remembering about Giuliani is that he is a creature of New York in the 1990s, somewhat in the way that Donald Trump was, where they couple this weird masculine power with a totally absurdist demeanor. There's a video from 2000 for a charity, and it has Giuliani, who was still mayor at the time, in drag, and he's in a department store testing perfume, and then Donald Trump comes along and starts hitting on him and burrows his head in Giuliani's ample bosom, and then Giuliani slaps him. It is really a video to haunt your dreams and a reminder of this weird mix of aggression and absurdity that these men have running through their veins. At least in that video, they were being intentionally ridiculous. During Giuliani's speech that we just heard, you heard a kid at the end. That was Andrew Giuliani, who was then, I believe, seven years old, who is now principally employed, as far as we can tell, as as Donald Trump's golf partner. Between those two periods, though, he was a student at Duke University. He was recruited to play golf, and he was kicked off the golf team and decided to sue Duke University and demand damages and the right to use their facilities for the rest of his life. And in the article the New York Times wrote about the lawsuit, it includes this little detail. In the lawsuit, he acknowledged that he may have misbehaved in February when he tossed an apple in a teammate's face, flipped his putter a few feet, threw and broke a club, and gunned his engine in the parking lot. But rather than quibble about these details, Andrew Giuliani said that he had apologized and that his conduct paled next to the bizarre treatment he said he'd received from the school once a new golf coach took over. (laughs) It's worth noting that in 2010, a federal judge threw out the lawsuit finding no evidence of a contract that entitled him to use Duke's golf facilities for the rest of his life. I mean, the main thing about being a, a, a child of privilege is to also feel aggrieved. So he fits that description well. Um, I was turned down for the prom a couple of times, and it makes me regret not suing the people who turned me down. <laughs> Emotional damage. Yeah. There's some weird echoes in there of some lawsuits undertaken by Giuliani Sr. at the end of 2020. Giuliani did run a heavy law and order campaign, but it's worth noting that crime began falling in New York under the reign of David Dinkins. And so I think in much the same way that Donald Trump, Giuliani's current boss, 
took credit for a booming economy that began under Barack Obama, Rudy Giuliani took credit for something that really began under his African-American predecessor. It's worth just dwelling for an instant on the months after September 11th when Giuliani was deemed America's mayor, and he went from being somewhat of a polarizing figure to one whom everyone admired. And you uh, look at him now and his role in national life, and uh, I wonder what he'll be remembered for, whether he'll be remembered for those months after September 11th or whether this later chapter in his professional career will dominate. But it was really Bloomberg, Michael Bloomberg, who, of course, won the election to succeed Giuliani, was an interesting figure in New York politics because he ran as a Republican, but he wasn't really a Republican. He kept on talking about how he was a liberal. What he really was was a technocrat. And he set about trying to get New York back on its feet, both through judicious spending cuts and tax increases. And then he appointed people who he deemed expert and set about having evidence-based policies across city government and some of these things were really dull. So he set up a 311 number that you call when you have a question for the city. And instead of calling a zillion different agencies to try to get the answer, there's one centralized number that will direct you to the right place. That seems minor, but it actually was a big quality of life improvement from New Yorkers. He thought about different industries to help grow the city's economy going forward. Those included life sciences, tech, you start to see that payoff. There have been big investments in the city by Google and Amazon recently, notwithstanding the hubbub over their headquarters in Queens. And he rezoned a lot of the city somewhat controversially, but helped promote a lot of development in the city. One thing that he sometimes got wrong was this tonal and cultural question. Stop and frisk was a policy that helped stoke antagonism and made uh, New Yorkers feel like Bloomberg's administration was leaving people behind, that even as the city flourished, there were people of color who were being left behind or actively targeted by this by this new government within the city. So he got some things tonally wrong that Bill de Blasio tried to correct, the current mayor, where he had a moralistic stance. Unfortunately, he couples that with deep managerial incompetence, which I'm sure we'll get to. But it's been a real flip from Bloomberg, the technocrat, to de Blasio, the moralist who has trouble managing. And Charlotte, we've talked quite a lot already about crime, the increase in crime in the 60s and 70s and 80s that meant that a lot of New Yorkers left and the decline in crime from the 90s onwards. Can you tell a long story, similar long story about schools in New York? Because if you look at the city's mid-century dip, the population essentially grows throughout the late 19th, early 20th century. Then it levels off in 1960. Then it levels off in about 1970 and remains more or less flat, dips a bit, but then comes back until about 1990. And of course, it's hard not to look at that 1970 date and conclude that what really happened there was the Civil Rights Act, the integration of public schools, um, a lot of white liberals, in theory, being in favor of racial mixing in schools, but in practice, moving to the suburbs so they could get their children away from it. What impact does that have on New York schools? And is there a similar story of public school recovery over the past couple of decades? Or has the improvement there not been as striking as the improvement in public safety? Bloomberg made public schools a big part of his mayoralty. He took the step of wresting control of public schools 
from school boards and putting them within the mayor's office, which became part of a national trend toward doing that. So he was very focused on trying to improve the quality of the city's schools, both through direct management, through the proliferation of charter schools. He had a lot of different initiatives around measurement that were underway to try to see how well schools were doing and how to improve them. I don't know what will happen, frankly, after this year. It's been such a year of crisis. As as people may know, New York's communication around opening schools or closing schools or exactly when they would open them has been quite disjointed and hard for parents and for teachers to plan around. And then there's the issue of remote learning. There have been tens of thousands of children that didn't have devices through which they could do digital learning and were being sent paper packets home. So I think the next mayor who will come on, uh, there's an election in, in 2021, that that mayor will have the job of trying to think about how to help children who really have will have had t- at least two years of very spotty instruction and how to help them move forward. So there's an immediate crisis that the city is dealing with, and then there's a longer-term crisis and question about how to continue to improve the performance of the city schools. Okay, thanks both. We'll be back in a minute to talk about how New York is going to rebuild itself in 2021. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. How does New York start to recover in 2021? Charlotte, you've been speaking to someone with a handle on this. Yes, I spoke to Kathy Wild, who's the head of the partnership for New York City, and she has served in that role for a long time. She essentially represents the interests of New York's biggest companies, biggest businesses who are interested in the management of the city. It was interesting to speak with her because while all of us are looking forward to the vaccine and what it might mean for the city reopening, she says that we're a long way from the worst of it. The economic crisis is just beginning to roll out. We've been insulated by federal assistance, but that has come to a halt now. We have half a million people in the city who, because they are either undocumented or gig workers, were not eligible for any of this aid. And as a result, we have long lines of people who are hungry, waiting for food, which is unprecedented since the Great Depression. This is the first time we have faced this level of crisis, certainly since the 1970s when we faced municipal bankruptcy. We lost a million in our population. We lost half our Fortune 500 companies. The partnership for New York City sent a letter to the mayor in September that expressed anxiety about public safety, cleanliness, and quality of life issues that might impede some of the city's employers from bringing more people back to work, that people might not want to come into the office. If you could be a bit more specific about where you think the mayor dropped the ball and whether he's since picked it back up. 
After 9-11 in 2001, the city within eight weeks basically had a plan for how we were going to move forward, how we were going to uh, secure our economy and, and our city against future terrorism attacks. And we had a commitment from the federal government for $21 billion to rebuild and support and pay the costs. This has been much less well-planned and more dragged out, both at the local government level and at the federal government level. We have not had that same kind of fast response. Facing a crisis, the history shows that cities recover based on how soon they have a plan and how united they are around execution on that plan. And that's been a real problem here. It's interesting because before COVID, I guess the most dramatic example of some of that, those fractured interests within New York might be manifest in the opposition to Amazon coming to Queens and then Amazon's decision uh, in the face of that opposition to, to, to not come to New York at all. And I wonder now whether in your conversations with some of the city's big corporate employers, there have been some announced departures and some rumored departures. What are what are they saying about the viability of remaining in New York? Do you think we're going to see an exodus of many more companies from the city? The question is really about talent and about individuals and will they remain committed to the city? And that's something I think that's a work in progress. Most New Yorkers have absolute confidence in the long-term strength and viability of the city. The question is, over the next few years, how will we be able to keep talent here? Uh, Our fiscal crisis in 1975, the loss of our industrial sector, the loss of manufacturing jobs, it took us 20 years to rebuild our communities and our city. And we cannot afford that in the fast-moving global economy that we have today. It's going to take a while. And if, if we're really good and really focused, we figure 2024. If we don't get our act together and don't get the support we need from Washington, it'll be longer. I was really struck by... Kathy saying that if New York is really, really assiduous, it can emerge from this crisis in 2024. I've also seen reports, as I'm sure you have, that Goldman Sachs has begun eyeing office space in Miami and Dallas. How worried are you? How worried should New York be about the sort of spiral that you just mentioned, where, where people start leaving, there's a tax base hollowing out, and there's perhaps a secular decline in, in the finance industry that's so important to the city? As someone who's a property owner in Manhattan, I hope it doesn't come to pass, but I think it is a real threat. I mean, you already had, again, before COVID, there was this instance of uh, Bernstein, Alliance Bernstein, which is a major financial institution, moving their headquarters down to Nashville. And I had friends who who moved down to Nashville with them because guess what? Nashville is a really great place to raise kids. You can have a house, you can have a yard. With Florida, there there are some firms, Elliott, which is a hedge fund, they've moved down to Florida already. You may see additional ones, not all of Goldman, but a big division of Goldman is what's being rumored to be in discussions. That's certainly not finalized yet. But you know, there are still reasons to, to be in New York. Um, it's hard because you don't notice them right now. The theaters are closed. 
eating out in 30 degree weather is for a very particular type of person. Um, and so, you know, it's hard to recognize all of these now, but what's happened in prior crises, after 2011, there wasn't really a mass exodus. People still wanted to come here. Google is planning a big campus, a big expanded campus on the west side of Manhattan. You know, I think it's definitely too soon to say that New York is going down the hole of the 1970s, but there certainly is a problem of how the city can manage this tension, which I named earlier, which is that you really have to get quality of life issues settled. It has to be safe. Garbage has to be picked up. People need to be able to take the subway. It's vital. You know, people don't have cars here. Mass transit needs to be working. And right now we don't have someone at the helm of New York who can answer those questions in a way that inspires confidence. So Charlotte, it wasn't that long ago that people were talking about superstar cities and the importance of dense clusters in economic growth and in fostering innovation. And maybe all of that was rubbish, but let's assume that it wasn't complete rubbish. You would imagine, therefore, that New York would still have all sorts of things going for it if it can get through this next period without quality of life declining. The difficulty there is that, as you pointed out already, there are some problems with the tax base, with some people moving out of the city. And so it seems to me what we might be looking at is a shortfall over the next couple of years that New York somehow needs to bridge so it can keep quality of life high and then all the good things about the city can come back. Is the city in a position to bridge that shortfall over the next year, two years? It's such a good question. And part of the problem is that we didn't go into the crisis with a particularly strong fiscal position. Bloomberg, who led the city from 2002 until 2015, he had a, a budget cushion that would amounted to about 18% of spending going into the Great Recession. De Blasio doesn't have a rainy day fund. Before the virus, New York City had a $6 billion budget hole now it faces a, almost a $60 billion budget shortfall through 2022. And the truth is, is that New York really does need federal help. One thing that I am always, um, as someone who is devoted to both New York City and the Midwest, one thing that always sticks in my craw is when you see this politicization of blue state bailouts and Mitch McConnell and other Republicans in the Senate talking about and casting cities as these sort of drains on the federal purse. And of course, New York City sends way more money to the federal government than it gets in return, in contrast to a place like North Dakota, which is the country's biggest recipient of federal money and sends very little revenue back to Washington. So I think there's a, a misconception about New York's broader economic contribution to the federal budget that needs to be corrected in order to understand why during this crisis a place like New York might be worthy of help. Charlotte, New York is going to have a new mayor at the end of this year. What is her or his role going to be in all of this? The new mayor has a huge task in front of them. Uh, of course, there's this issue of managing the the city's finances, which is probably the single biggest problem, figuring out how to raise taxes without driving more businesses and residents out of the city um, and cut spending without impacting safety or quality of life, as we've discussed. I think there's an interesting broader cultural question, which I think I raised before in talking about Bloomberg versus de Blasio, but is still a really big question for New York, which is 
how you can have both a really thriving 0.001% of, of, of income earners who are at the very top of the income bracket in New York City who help to create jobs and certainly help support the city's finances, but also have a more inclusive version of growth so that you have people coming to New York who see it as a place where you can rise, where where, where you are socially mobile, where you can um, have greater opportunity. And New York's population growth historically uh, in recent years has really been due to immigration. Um, this is still viewed as a place by people all over the world where you come and you are given opportunity and you're able to thrive. And so I think New York's task is both dealing with the immediate challenge of the city's fiscal problem, but also dealing with that question of whether New York can continue to be what it aspires to be, which is a place of inclusive growth for everybody. As a New Year's special, because I'm our supposed expert on New York, it was deemed unfair that I should be able to answer the quiz questions on New York, which are let our listeners make up their minds about whether that's a form of justice or not. But anyway, I'm going to ask a quiz question about New York to you two. So the first one is, Rudy Giuliani made his Economist debut in March of 1985, and we wrote that the mafia has been around for so long that Americans have come to accept it as permanent. We said that Giuliani predicted the mob's demise, and he was a U.S. attorney at the time. He'd indicted the heads of the city's five infamous mob families. Giuliani claimed mafia racketeering increased the cost of city services by a third, and The Economist put their cut to be somewhat smaller, near to 1%. But in which grubby business was mob influence most notorious at that time? Garbage hauling. I was going to say construction, concrete. I'm sorry, John Fasman wins again. Um, garbage, definitely. Or as we would like to say, rubbish. Waste management. I can pretty much tell you that no mafioso refers to garbage hauling as having anything to do with rubbish. It just doesn't sound um. very threatening, does it? <laughs> Unless you pay me money, I won't collect your rubbish. Yeah, you picture a sort of weenie wastebasket. <laughs> okay, and then the second question is, the biggest hit to the mafia business model was the puncturing of the five families' invulnerability. The mob was also facing stiff competition. Which 1980s consumer trend threatened to put them out of business? Huh. I... This is according to The Economist at the time. So almost certainly untrue. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It was before... I would have thought that the sort of legalization of gambling on Native American property would have cut into there, but that's, I think the 80s is too early for that, isn't it? Well, Atlantic City, I was thinking, but that's a bit earlier too, right? Yeah. Kind of getting warmer. What do people also do in Atlantic City other than gamble? Sing Bruce Springsteen songs. Yeah. Um, I guess they go to the beach. What else do they do? 2PG. Oh, strip clubs. <laughs> Should I put you out of your misery? This is, I, I now understand why you have such a pained expression while you're asking us the quiz questions. Yeah, put us out of our misery. I'm really disappointed with this. I thought the answer to pretty much all questions about New York were either Robert Moses or Jane Jacobs, <laughs> so I'm really disappointed. <laughs> 
The answer here is cocaine and marijuana. So that you had the rise of a big illicit business that the traditional mafia families did not control. Um, they were quite disappointed by that. This is the kind of Scarface story, essentially. <laughs> exactly. John Fasman, I wish you luck with all of your secret resolutions and look forward to talking with you next week. Happy New Year, Charlotte. Happy New Year to you, Charlotte. Happy New Year to you both and to all our listeners. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.